All right, this month, thrift stores everywhere have been pretty swamped with an unprecedented amount of donations for a January. Goodwills across the country have been seeing people line up bringing dozens of bags and boxes of clothing and other items, much more than is typical at this time of year. So New Yorker fashion reporter Rachel Syme went to one of these thrift stores in Brooklyn, and she went down this line of people waiting to turn in their donations and asked them all, are you here because of the show? And nine out of ten of them said, yeah, yeah, we're here because of the show. The show, of course, is Netflix's new hit, Tidying Up, with Marie Kondo, all right? If you haven't seen it, you've probably heard of it, because it's like having a cultural moment right now, right? This takes Marie Kondo's methodology fully mainstream. I mean, Kondo has been doing this for a while, transforming lives through tidying for years, thanks to her best-selling books like The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. She's from Japan, but she's gone way global, um, sold out workshops around the world. Um, but as all the cool kids know, if you really want to make an impact, you got to be on Netflix, right? So this hits close to home. In the Martins world, the tidying craze has begun. It started with Jason watching the show a few weeks ago, and after like a fairly typical for us frustrating struggle with the kids about cleaning their room, uh, Jason just declared, it was time that we tried it Marie Kondo's way. So we are doing that. We got the book. We got the kids even to watch a few episodes with us. And then last weekend, we began the process for ourselves with Jason taking the lead. So you have to do it in steps. She has like very clear steps you have to follow. So last weekend, we did all the clothes. Yesterday was all the books. Um, and the kids have actually gotten pretty into it. I, I was cautious and skeptical, but, but they're actually doing pretty well. In fact, this week when it was time for them to put away their laundry, the girls were actually like really excited to put away their laundry, which is not normal because they like how it looks when it's all folded up and put away. So, you know, that right there feels like a win. Now, what makes the Marie method, as she calls it, unique is um, that it's not simply about just, like, purging your stuff and improving your storage. Although, don't get me wrong, those are, like, important components. But Marie Kondo is really encouraging more than just a thinning of your closet. She's inviting folks into mindfulness in regards to your possessions. Okay? She asks her clients to take every item they own, take it in their hands, look at it, hold it, touch it, and then ask the question internally, does this spark joy? Does this spark joy? If it does, she invites them to keep it and find a tidy place in your house for it to live. If, if it doesn't, she encourages her clients to thank the item and then let it go. Thank you. Thank it for its usefulness to them, for all that it's brought them. Even if it's brought them the knowledge that they don't like this item, that's useful in and of itself. Thank it for that and let it go. And as Goodwill is discovering, a lot of people have recently discovered they have a lot of things in their cupboards and their closets that do not spark joy. Now, there are fair critiques of the philosophy and the methodology in the KonMari method, the privilege it certainly assumes to be able to easily discard things, uh, as well as I've heard some fair critiques of 
um, taking a method that's really rooted in uh, Japanese Shinto philosophy and kind of stripping it from that culture, how, how some white Americans may uh, kind of miss a lot of the core points of it. So I think all that is fair. What I do find intriguing, and that does really seem to ring true about what she's doing, is this core belief at the heart of her method. And that's the, at the heart of the KonMari method is this understanding that before your daily habits can change, you have to change the way you think about them. You have to change the way you think. Kondo firmly believes that if your possessions aren't just like stuff to be managed, but in your mind, if they are items that you have thoughtfully chosen to bring forward with you into your future, then you're likely to regard caring for them differently. I start with this because it strikes me as relevant to the teaching series we're engaging here at the beginning of the year, this series on discernment. Because that's essentially what Marie Kondo is inviting her clients into. She's asking them to be discerning in regards to their possessions. Now, I'm calling our teaching series Hearing Through Noise. And in it, I'm inviting us to consider how we might better gauge what's truth, what's the voice of God in our lives, what is something else, particularly when we've got so many things competing for our attention, so many voices shouting in our ears, so much noise. Two weeks ago, I suggested that the first step in cultivating discernment is to turn down the volume to actively make space for contemplation, quiet. Turn down the volume on all the things shouting for our attention. Hopefully some of you have maybe experimented with that over the last couple weeks. And even if it's not like a daily thing, perhaps you've taken a few moments that maybe you wouldn't have taken for stillness, for paying attention. So what's the next step? I'm going to suggest that perhaps the next helpful step could be summed up like this. Know your own voice. Know your own voice. Once we make the space for stillness, once we turn down the volume of life and begin to pay attention to our thoughts, to what's going on in us, what next? What do we do with that space to cultivate our capacity to discern where the divine might be speaking I came to personal faith as a young adult in a more charismatic church that taught that God could speak to you, like in your mind, that you could hear words from the divine through the Holy Spirit. But one of the classic quandaries in that, when you're trying to start tuning in, is that classic question, is it God or is it me? Is it God or is it me? Is that God's voice or is that just my imagination, my internal dialogue? And it is always legit. It's a legit question, and honestly one that I don't think we can fully answer with just what's going on in your head alone. But a part of even being able to start answering that question has to be understanding more about what you are bringing to the table, right? What does your voice actually sound like? How does the way you're wired, your unique way of interacting in the world, your desires, your fears, how do all of those things shape? what it is that you can discern? How can you even begin to say what is from you versus the Holy Spirit if you don't really know your own voice? So it seems to me that a necessary component 
in developing greater discernment has to be developing greater self-awareness. You can't decide what to keep and care for and what to let go of without an awareness of what you cherish, right? In the same way you can't easily follow Jesus on a journey into wholeness if you're not clear about what you actually, where you actually personally experience brokenness. So let's think about Jesus for a bit. What role did self-awareness play for him? I think we can easily fall into that trap of assuming, well, Jesus was just self-aware. Duh, he was God, right? He's fully aware of his own identity, what motivated him, what he's gifted in, what he's challenged by, because he is the divine in flesh. He had the superhero thing going, we think. He's like Thor or Superman, like looks like a human, but definitely with some powers that humans don't have. But that I don't think takes seriously enough the meaning behind the affirmation our faith makes, that the word becomes flesh, that God dwelt in human form in the person of Jesus. We, we can think of him kind of without really thinking of him, I think. I don't know that anyone is like, I really think Jesus is like Thor. But I think we kind of, when we don't take his humanity seriously, we kind of do that unintentionally. We forget that Jesus was limited. That's actually the heart of the mystery that is the incarnation. So I thought this was so important, I put it on the screen and on your fill-in-the-blank. Without limitation, there is no incarnation. Without limitation, there is no incarnation. Does that make sense? Jesus was limited. The divine was limited in Jesus. And so the story isn't that the source of all life simply presents as a man, but is still really just walking around as God. The story is the divine one makes themselves less. The divine becomes limited. For the first time, God is born. God needs to learn how to eat. God has questions and stuff to figure out for the first time in history. God, in human form, Jesus, is dependent on relationships with other humans to help him grow into a person with a unique identity, and he has to become self-aware. I would argue that the gospel stories reflect just that, a man who doesn't simply have all the answers from the beginning, but a man who, like all of us, is on a journey of self-discovery and fulfillment, who's becoming ever more aware of who he is, how he is connected and able to reveal God's presence in the world, and what purposeful life looks like for him, how he can participate in that fully. And I'm just going to show you this a little bit through an arc, of where a few little stories, I feel like, throughout his life where we get to see potentially that trajectory. You know, besides his infancy, the first time we see Jesus in the Gospels is in Luke 2. He's a boy of 12, would, would be considered almost a grown man, um, but still a boy in the culture of his day. His family has gone to Jerusalem as part of the large annual pilgrimage that happens every Passover to celebrate with their community. And after the festival, their group is caravanning back, back all the way to Galilee, and a day into the voyage home, Mary and Joseph, they likely, I guess they thought that he was in like their friend's tent or their cousin's tent or something, but they realized they don't know where Jesus is. 
And they look among their friends and their relatives, and he's not with any of them. So probably pretty panicked, they head back to Jerusalem to see if they can find their son. And when they, it says here in picking up in Luke 2.45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were overwhelmed. His mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. I can so relate. Um, But he replied, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Yet his parents did not understand the remark he made to them. So here we see young Jesus at the age of 12. Clearly, he already has a profound self-awareness that is developing. He understands on some level his identity and its implications. This is amazing for a 12-year-old, I will say. But he probably gets it, it seems, more than his parents actually do, who are likely the people who've given him the clues up to this point about who he is. They're the ones who've taught him the traditions. They're the ones who've helped him learn the Torah. They've probably told him the miraculous stories of his birth. So he has a sense mainly probably because of them, of who, how he's connected to God. And Jesus understands this, that he is connected to the divine in an intimate way. Already he's calling God his father. He understands he needs to be with people who are devoted to the things of the father. He gets that he has belonging with God in God's sacred place with the people of God. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But there's also a quest young Jesus is on, a quest of curiosity. He doesn't have all the answers. That's why he stayed. He's sitting with the teachers of the law asking questions. He's trying to figure it out. He's eager to learn. As much as he may be impressed, like as much as he's impressive in what he's already perceived, he also knows he has a lot to learn. He's trying to understand more deeply who this God is, how he's connected to what God is doing in the world. By the time Jesus is an adult, fully released into ministry, he seems to have developed a much more keen capacity for self-awareness and discernment. Perhaps it was cultivated in times he spent, like in solitude, like the 40 days in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And now, this is what he teaches. He's calling his followers into self-awareness. Instruction around self-examination, deepening self-awareness, that becomes core to what he preaches. It's the heart of the famous Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he tells them things like, Don't give in public where others are sure to applaud your giving. Do it in secret. Same with when you pray. Same with when you fast. Don't let your devotion to God simply be a way of earning you points in the eyes of the people around you. Check your motives. Examine your own hearts. Look inside. Figure out why you're doing that. There's this one, Matthew 7. Starting at verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by the standard you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be the measure you receive. 
Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye while there is a beam in your own? You hypocrite! First, remove the beam from your own eye. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Often I think a lot of us look at this verse and we focus on the part about not judging others, right? Strangely, I think we can pull it out as like a snarky tool for calling someone out when we see them being pretty judgy, right? Especially in a religious context. But how many of us are actually willing to sit in and respond to Jesus' invitation to our own self-examination. That's arguably the point. Stop focusing on what other people are doing and pay attention to yourself first, right? Make space to regularly look for the beams in your own eyes. Not just criticize others for not doing that, right? Finally, We see Jesus still on what I think is a journey of deepening self-awareness and understanding as he wrestles excruciatingly the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has had his last Passover with his followers some 20 or so years after the one that left him lingering in the temple. And now he's coming to terms with his own call, not only to observe the Passover, but essentially to become the Passover lamb himself. And yet he feels in himself a conflict between what he senses God is asking of him and what his own human self really desires. So he asks his, con- his closest friends to please join him in prayer. And we see this in Matthew 26. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, And became anguished and distressed. And then he said to them, Oh, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself down with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me for one hour? Stay awake and pray you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will must be done. He came again and found them sleeping. They could not keep their eyes open. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same thing once more. Three times we see Jesus wrestling over and over. He prays this same desperate prayer, take this cup away. Don't make me do this. Let there be another way. But ultimately, each time he lands in, not my will, but yours, O God. Looking at him, alongside the other characters in the story, we see the contrast, right? Between Jesus' own raw self-awareness, he's crying out to God, clear that he is in conflict, that he does not have in him what he needs for what's to come. 
And then there's the complete lack of self-awareness in his friends, right? They have no idea how they're disappointing him. They have no idea what they're missing right now. They are clueless. Despite, Jesus is pleased to them. What this Gethsemane encounter shows me is that Jesus wasn't just like serenely going through the motions of life, living out his years. He was working hard to align his own very human heart with the heart of the divine. Not what I will, but what you will, he prayed again and again. It was work right up until his last moments. There's conflict even in the last moments. There's a swirl of emotions as he's fully feeling the desolation He's experiencing, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's feeling compassion for his clueless and unself-aware fellow humans. As he says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And finally, with his last breath, he can fully surrender to the divine will. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. So if this rings true, that Jesus was on a journey, that he had to work at self-awareness in order to hear the voice of God and align with it. How could we not have to work at it, right? How could we not have to? I think it is an important part, if we want to grow in discernment, to hear the Spirit's promptings in our own noisy lives. We have to get in touch with our voices and getting to know our own voice. So how do we engage in that? What's the work we need to be doing? Honestly, there's a lot of good practices you could look at. I listed just a few. I mean, the KonMari method. (laughs) It's a method of discernment. A lot of of her clients say it's not just about the stuff. Once I do this, I begin to be more mindful about all these other areas of my life. I left my husband, (laughs) or I, I left this job, or I came, you know, I began to discover a whole new vocation because I began to understand more thoughtfully what brings me joy and what doesn't. Journaling is a way many people become more aware of their own inner voice. Sometimes it's really helpful to externalize it so that then you can reflect back at it, you can look at it, and then you can kind of start to understand it. Therapy, certainly a tool that can yield important breakthroughs in self-awareness and understanding of one's voice. And then, of course, the classic Christian spiritual disciplines like confession, fasting, prayer and contemplation, deep spiritual community where people know each other intimately and can hold one another accountable. All of those can be good ways of cultivating deeper self-awareness. But I want to spend the rest of our time considering one particular tool that I might offer that I have found particularly powerful and um, I've come to a number of times in my life and I'm in a season right now of wanting to reconnect with discernment and finding this tool actually super powerful in ways that I, I think I missed before. So I think it has capacity to kind of grow with us and that's called the Enneagram. So I know the Enneagram is probably not new to many of us, Um, But it might be to some. So can you just raise your hand if you're familiar with the Enneagram so I have a sense? Okay. And then if you're not just familiar with it, but you're fairly confident, like you know your type, you've kind of figured that piece out, you're 
like I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not going to quiz you or anything, but like that you know that you've kind of engaged it to that level. Okay, that's fine. So I'm going to just spend a little time considering the usefulness of this tool, not because I want you all to become Enneagram devotees. That's not my goal. Um, I just know this is a tool for, it's one of many tools that exist, but this is one uh, for self-examination and understanding that's brought a lot of usefulness into my life and to, I think, other folks in this community. Um, and so I just hope considering a little bit about what this is, hearing some of my story might encourage you, if nothing else, to think about, if not this, is there some other way of like systematically kind of um, engaging in some self-examination and growth that might be helpful for you in this season. So my hope is that for those of us who've used the Enneagram in the past, um, during that time that, like during this time that we're discerning together, we're talking about that, maybe consider revisiting some of your insights from that work and see how they come to bear on this discernment conversation. Or perhaps like me, what new things in this season uh, might, might be becoming open to us. So first of all, what is the Enneagram? Essentially, it's a typology that describes nine different kinds of people, okay? The word Enneagram comes from Greek, essentially means nine figures or nine signs, and it tries to tell us uh, how different people, how people are different from one another. In that way, it's similar in some ways to other typologies you might be aware of, like astrological typologies or psychological profiles like Myers-Briggs, but as Franciscan friar and contemporary mystic Richard Rohr points out, the Enneagram is also a unique typology because it is dynamic. It is dynamic. He says it this way. The Enneagram is more than an entertaining game for learning about oneself. It's concerned with change and making a turnaround with what the religious traditions call conversion or repentance. It confronts us with compulsions laws under which we live, usually without being aware of it, and it aims to invite us to go beyond them, to take steps into the domain of freedom. Author Christopher Hertz has a great book on the Enneagram as well, and he says, he describes it this way, the contemporary Enneagram of personality illustrates the nine ways we get lost, but also the nine ways we can come home to our true self. Put another way, it exposes nine ways we lie to ourselves about who we think we are, nine ways we can come clean about those illusions, and nine ways we can find our way back to God. More than just a personality indicator, the Enneagram provides what Hertz calls a sacred map to wholeness. A sacred map to wholeness. I have put, if you're interested in seeing it a little closer, um, on the back side of those handouts, there's a, there's a little description and an image, um, and just with a, a few words about each, each of the types. But we're not going to go into all of them. Um, so where does the sacred map come from? Just a little bit about the origins. Um, they are actually believed to be pre, quite ancient, likely pre-Christian. Um, historic evidence has been found of images like the current Enneagram, and descriptions of nine types of people in ancient cultures across the globe. Um, legends abound about the actual development of the Enneagram, um, including the legends that basically say it influenced all of the major religions in some way, and it was enriched by them as it was handed um, down through the ages from, from kind of various groups of people to one another. But 
the most like the modern version, the contemporary version that we have come to know in the West here um, seems to have really arisen in the mid 20th century, likely influenced by a group of Sufi mystics in Asia. Um, and Westerners began to develop this contemporary version we know today. Um, one of the first major spiritual and psychological teachers of the Enneagram in the United States was in the 70s and 80s, a psychologist named Dr. Claudio Naranjo. He's one of the, the people who basically brought it to the U.S. And he first taught the system to a community in his backyard here in Berkeley. So that's kind of interesting. It was in that era that the Jesuits, uh, that group of um, you know, Catholic spiritual, uh, really focus on um, you know, spiritual development, um, they were introduced to the Enneagram as well. And initially through them, it became utilized and spread as an important, useful tool in Christian discipleship. So we've seen since that time, since the 70s, many who've discovered the usefulness of the Enneagram's wisdom in the practice of Jesus-centered faith, although it's kind of used in various versions in all kinds of faith traditions and non-faith. So, like I say, I don't have time to go into all the nine types. That's not really my intention to help you figure out your type today. Um, I've given you the overview. I've also given you some uh, resources if you're interested in learning more, some books, some podcasts you could check out um, if you want to learn more. But an important thing to know as you discern in the Enneagram, which, which your type might be, is that it's not, this isn't something just to like stroke your ego or give you that little boost of narcissistic fun, like when you take that online quiz that tells you what Hogwarts house you belong in or what Disney princess you would be, right? You know those. The Enneagram is there to identify both your strengths, your core strengths, but it also challenges you to recognize your shadow side, how your strengths are actually masks for your greatest weaknesses. That's kind of the core insight. Because of this, discovering our type will usually feel a bit humiliating as the motives behind how we operate become unmasked. This is the beginning of the path to true freedom and wholeness. So today I'm going to simply invite us to look together at the three core categories that the nine types fall into and how just even considering these categories alone, we might receive a little insight about how we as individuals function and how we could be invited to grow and how that could affect our discernment. The three categories I'm talking about are what the Enneagram calls the three intelligence centers. What's meant by that is the idea that each of us has like a primary lens through which we take in the world. We each have like a center of gravity that we lead with as we navigate the human experience. So all of us have physical instincts. All of us have emotions. All of us have thoughts. And they all drive our behavior. But the Enneagram claims that each of us has one of those that's dominant, that kind of comes most naturally, that's like the filter through which everything else is read, right? So consider if one of these might feel familiar to you. Some people are led by what they might call their gut. These are, to, the Enneagram calls this the body center. These names can be a little different depending on who's presenting it. So you could hear it called the body center, the gut center, the instinct and these correspond to types, what are called types 8, 9, and 1. And these people experience life through intuitive instinct and tactile engagement of their senses. They can be hypersexual. That's sometimes part of the, of the, the makeup. It's hyper-physically responsive. 
And they seem to lead by instinct, by kind of a sense they simply know what they know. And they know what's clearly needed, and they're impassioned to bring it about. Hertz says this of them, people in the instinctive center engage the world through activity in an effort to assert and maintain a sense of their control. I, I think, let's just go back to the image right now, because that shows the, no, the other one, the first one, that one. Yeah, so you can see the body, where I'm talking, the colors. This is, it breaks it out by colors up here. So I'm talking about these people in the yellow. Um, so yeah, sorry, he says... Um, They engage the world through an activity and an effort to assert and maintain a sense of their control. At their best, gut people harness this energy and direct it through their initiating ability to build a better world. These can be real activists. At their worst, it seems everything annoys them. Frustration is a particular challenge of those in the body center. Kind of like just always bubbling beneath the surface. Some people seem more led by their hearts or their response to their feelings. That's the so-called heart center seen here in blue. It includes types two, three, four. It's also called the emotional center, the relational center. So these people's energy is drawn towards others. They're often intensely relational. They thrive in social situations. However, in some ways, The name is a misnomer because while these folks are led by their hearts, they're actually often very disconnected from their own feelings. Heart people are generally more directed to the feelings of others. They care very much about how others feel, how others feel about them, more than they are aware of how they themselves feel. So shame is a particular challenge for those in the heart center. Then there are folks who seem to lead with their heads. This is the red group. <clears throat> they think their feelings, they think their feelings more than they feel them. Does that make sense? They think their feelings more than they feel them. They describe this describes people in groups five, six, and seven. They live in the land of ideas. They make decisions often through lists of pros and cons. Roar says of them, in every situation, the members of, of this group first take a step backward to reflect. Fear of the unknown or unforeseen is a motivating challenge for those who lead with their heads, which is why they spend so much energy trying to reason things through. It's it's like a defense mechanism because of their fear. They're trying to get security. So I, myself, am an Enneagram 3. This version labels that the achiever. Sometimes it's called the performer. Uh, I think on yours it might be something else. Um, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about how this connects with me. I'm a heart person. Okay. I'm in the heart triad. I'm led by my feelings. Threes are led specifically, like I said, how, uh, they can perceive how others feel towards them. But threes, even amongst the heart group are particularly adept at reading other people's perceptions and opinions and shaping themselves to be most appealing and pleasing to what, whoever you're with is going to find attractive. So they have very high radars for other people's feelings, and they naturally mirror them. But being connected to their own feelings, much more of a challenge. When I consider myself, I have to confess that I recognize these patterns in myself. My threeness, that actually serves me very well in this role here. 
as your pastor, right? My radar for others' feelings helps me empathize and sense what the folks I'm caring for need in any given situation. I have a capacity to recognize whatever role needs to be filled and pivot. That's a very common thing for threes to develop, okay? But if I'm not careful, I have to recognize that my gift is also my weakness. A detachment from my own feelings, a lack of awareness of my own needs can fuel work that becomes ultimately superficial, ultimately performative alone, instead of being grounded in genuine conviction. In this particular trying season of challenge, which I have spoken about, which I know many of you know, I'm going through one of the hardest seasons I think I've been through, with a lot going on emotionally, I'm recognizing anew I need to find ways to get more in touch deeply with what I'm feeling and allow those feelings to be expressed so that when I'm here, there's not this big gap between where I'm really at and what I feel like I need to perform for you for approval and acceptance. So how do I go about that? How do any of us take the first step in trying to bring greater wholeness to that part of ourself that is a gift, but also our place of brokenness. Even without understanding our whole type, attending just to what our center of intelligence might be can give us a place to start. Teachers of the Enneagram point to a corrective for each of these ways that these centers get a little off balance. And those can serve as a starting point for growth. So even if you never take the Enneagram, even if you never take it seriously, you might find just thinking about this helpful. These three correctives may sound like they're the same, but when you think about it, they're distinctly different, and that's important. So for those in the body or gut center we talked about first, and here's where we're going to fill in the blanks. Stillness is the important antidote to the activity that gut people are led by. Chris Hertz says it this way, the gift of stillness refines the body center's instinctive drive to do by creating interior accountability for proper engagement in the active life. Does that make sense? So when you're busy, 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 doing, 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 just leading with your gut, if you don't take the time to just stop and be still, you can't actually discern where you want to put that gut action into, into motion. It's just reactive, right? So you need to have a space to resist that constant activity and consider, okay, where do I feel useful? Where do I feel called to put that action, right? In that place of stillness, you can discern. Folks like me, in the heart center, we need solitude. It's not necessarily the same as stillness. You can be still and be with other people. But we need solitude. We need to be alone. Because we spend so much of our energy fed by others' feelings towards us. But we feed on that. We interact with that. We need space to withdraw from people so we can begin to just feel ourselves. This is my antidote to my extroverted, chameleon, empathetic, three 
self. As much as I love being with you and being with my family and my friends, I'm recognizing more and more I need to be alone so that my radar for everyone else's feelings can like chill for a while. And actually, I can start to tune into myself instead. Hertz puts it this way. Solitude teaches us how to be present. Present to God, to ourselves, and to others with no strings attached. That's big for heart people. Head folks, your invitation is to silence. Silence internally. Silencing the thoughts. It's not simply a quieting of activity, it's a quieting of the mind. What if you were to silence those voices of worry, the what-ifs, the cost-benefit analysis, just for a while, to shut down that internal dialogue and just listen? To these folks, Hertz encourages, silence helps us learn how to listen to the voice of God in our lives, a voice we may have been unable to recognize before. Silence helps us listen to the people in our lives who speak loving words of truth or affirmation over us. Silence helps us listen to ourselves, our desires, and our fears. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be limited by a blindness to my own brokenness. I don't want to be unable to hear the voice of God or of my own heart because my radar is too tuned into the voices of other people in any room I'm in. I don't want that. I want to have the capacity that Jesus had to understand more about how I am uniquely made, how I am connected to my creator, and how I can align my heart and my will with God's and say, not mine, but yours. I want to have the insight and courage to attend to the beams in my own eyes. To remove the things that keep me from seeing clearly. So that with clarity and improved vision, I can participate in the freeing of others to see clearly as well. What is your sacred map? How are you going to do that? It might not be the Enneagram, but I encourage you to consider what it is. What guides can you use to raise your own awareness of how you work? What mirrors can you use to identify the beams in your eyes? What role might silence, stillness, or solitude play in your own growth and healing? How might you get to know your own voice? The good news is that none of us have to take this journey alone. I believe Jesus wants us to grow in wholeness, not to be bound by our types and their limitations, but to live more fully into all we were created to be. Jesus' gifts, Jesus' gift to us in this endeavor is the same spirit that he was gifted with as he grew in discernment, a spirit that is intended to bring freedom to us, to bring freedom, as Paul put it. The Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom. May we all sense that freedom, not to be trapped in our own limitations, but to grow in knowing our own voices and using them for healing and liberation. Amen.